I believe we are all being encouraged to take Venus too seriously, at any rate, with a wrong kind of seriousness. We have reached the stage at which nothing is more needed than a roar of old-fashioned laughter. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 20, The Four Loves, Chapter 5, Eros, Part 2. Well, good morning, everyone, or good evening, or whatever time of day you're listening to us. Pints with Jack, of course, is your favorite, and our favorite, too, weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. Well, friends, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded. How are you all doing? Well, I am doing well. Marie and I are visiting San Diego at the moment. And the house where we're staying, almost every floor is tiled. So to avoid lots of echoes, I've gathered my recording equipment and I am back in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For those of you in England, he means the cupboard or the wardrobe. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Thank you for translating. It's quite the shoe collection you got there, David. Oh, oh, it is. So pretty. So pretty. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's been lovely being back. We've got to see lots of Marie's family and some of our friends. And we've uh, even ticked off a few tasks. Our taxes are already done. Oh. And needless to say, we have both eaten our own weight in Mexican food and sushi. (laughs) Yeah. They have fish there, but it's not Japanese. I miss San Diego. I have... have a really close friend here that's him and his wife may end up moving to to San Diego for like a six month travel nurse stint. And I really hope they do because it'll give me an excuse to work there remotely for a week or two and just catch up with friends, play, almost play host, even though I don't live there, but I can show them around. And so I'm, I'm really hoping, and if it does, it'll happen, I believe beginning of March. So it could be fast. Nice. What else is going on with you, Matt? Yeah. Uh, the thing that has been hitting me the last couple of days, few days, and I've brought this person up multiple times before. I just re-listened to the podcast. It's back in like July of 21, 2021. So if you guys want to go back, it's on Pints with Aquinas. I was listening to the Matt Frad, Sister Miriam James podcast. Honestly, one of the most beautiful interactions I've heard between two people. They're clearly very close friends and have a deep love for each other and then a deep love for the Lord. There's something healing and therapeutic just by hearing them and the holiness of that relationship and the relationship with God. And then on top of that, the wisdom that comes out of that episode hmm. is just moving because she has such a a painful, traumatic, broken childhood from adoption to sexual abuse to alcoholism at the age of 12 and all these different things. And yet to to come to the Lord with such tenderness and vulnerability and allow him to heal those parts of herself, it's, it's moving. And so I've, I've read her book, as I've already mentioned before, Loved As I Am. I'm reading the Bob Schultz book, Be Healed or Be Transformed. I think it's Be Healed. It's something that I just feel like God's been placing in my heart the next three to six months is to take that journey more seriously. So allocate time in the evenings of 30 minutes of that prayer and reflection. So not just to read a book that talks about being healed, but enter into healing prayer and write down those parts of yourself that 
are broken, that you might be angry at God with. She talks about some of that in her past and those, those traumas, and she's had plenty of those sessions. And so, anyways, highly would recommend it. I love it. It's a great episode. It'll probably spur your thoughts like mine to go in a bunch of different directions and read different things. But July of 2021 was when that was hmm. done. Well, and I love that because of the reading of this book, The Four Loves, Matt is being uh, urged towards appreciative love for Ophelia that he sees portrayed. So now he's got categories for it all. Well done, Andrew. <laughs> that, that, that was a nice application of it. I'm impressed. I know, I know it was on the tip of your tongue. I just wanted to, you know, steal your thunder with that. Well, well it just dawned on me. It's not even noon yet when we're recording this. So that means we're going to get Andrew at his finest. I mean, we're going to, last oh time gosh. we did a morning recording, Andrew, you were bringing it. <laughs> uh, two and a half cups of coffee to the good, too. <laughs> well, for my part, I just finished my first, uh, first week of my last semester of seminary and uh, taking wonderful classes, the mission of God, doctrine of God, uh, medieval mystics and prophetic preaching. Uh, so fantastic things, still working away at my Northwind stuff, still working away at my independent studies, finished my article for Perichoresis, still working on my chapter for Lewis as philosopher. Um, so those things are just, uh, just clicking along. But also my spiritual director, a couple of months ago, I was just telling her about how I felt really lethargic and reluctant in prayer. And she recommended um, Evelyn Underhill's uh, Concerning the Inner Life. Hmm. And this is a book of, I guess, a series of talks that she gave to priests about how nurturing the inner life is one of the most important things to do. And she says, remember, you are a reservoir, not a canal. Um, and so just been fantastic. So so just gearing up, Kristen's writing her 83rd book or something, and, <laughs> and we're just, we're clicking away here in Chile, Chile, Virginia. Well... How's everybody staving off the cold? What are your beverages of choice today, gentlemen? Well, it is very early here on the West Coast, so I have a big cup of tea. Ah, lovely. And Matt? A big cup of tea that is more strategically being drank out of a Pints with Jack tea mug. Of ah, course. there you go. I am uh, drinking out of my Bucky's mug. Uh, Bucky's, that wonderful uh, Texas convenience store slash Walmart of all things roadside goodie. And I'm having to fulfill the Texas theme, the H-E-B San Antonio blend. It's got some hints of vanilla and cinnamon. And a fun trivia fact, Tolkien's daughter, Priscilla Tolkien, is a big fan of this blend. And so I brought her a couple of pounds of it one time in my visit over to Oxford. Well, so I think that we should take our glasses and toast to Evan Griffin. Evan, thank you. You just uh, upgraded your support on Patreon, and we just can't be thankful enough uh, for you and your legacy. So cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, the disappointing ding. I should just get a pints, uh, pints glass. Oh, I got a text from Phil Keggy, the amazing guitarist, dear friend of mine. I've spoken of him before, and I had given him a pints um, scotch glass, and he sent me a text with a picture of it next to his pipes, and, uh, and said, I enjoy a wee dram of the Irish in this little glass almost every night. Thank you so much. So I love it. So cheers to Phil as well. Well, David, hit us with a recap. Okay. I'm going to be very terse at first. In chapter one, we learned that love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. Then in chapter two, we learned about love of nature and love of country and how they can both become twisted. 
In chapter 3, we dealt with affection, or storgi, which is the love of the familiar and the family. Unfortunately, it can become ravenous. In chapter 4, we looked at friendship, or philia, which is the love between companions who discover some kind of shared care or insight. And it's humbling, it's uninquisitive, and it's not prone to jealousy. Lewis says that it can exist between the sexes, but only if companionship exists there already. It can embolden us for good or for ill. It can make us deaf to outsiders, again, for good or for ill. And it can foster pride. We've actually had some really great feedback from our listeners on the Slack channel about friendship. Carlotta came across this passage from one of Jack's letters. He wrote, We meet theoretically to talk about literature, but in fact nearly always to talk about something better. What I owe to the Inklings is incalculable. Is any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a good fire? Her brother, Santiago, not to be outdone, shared a quotation from The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings, which was by the Zaleskis. And in it, he came across the line, Arthur Greaves sometimes complained that their talk was too much of books and music, not enough of inner struggles. And Santiago commented that sharing of inner struggles is a key component to many of his friendships. And we'd all said the same thing, Matt in particular. Then, last week, we began chapter 5 on romantic love, Eros. And Jack distinguished Eros from its carnal component, which he called Venus. And he said that the morality of Venus depends not on the presence of Eros, but on more basic matters. Sexual attraction may be preceded by Eros, but Lewis thinks that it more often follows Eros, beginning with a preoccupation with the person, preceding the sexual element. And when we left off last time, Lewis had been refuting the idea that the chief danger in Eros is its carnal element. Anything to add? David, honestly, you're just getting so good at these. You know, I felt <laughs> like I needed to be training wheels in the beginning and add a few things, but now we're just going to take them off and let you fly. <laughs> So training wheels for flying. A little bit of a mixed metaphor, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, I, I hope that most of the things that we fly in have wheels on them. It would be a little a little bumpy on the way in and out if they didn't. Um, I, I agree. These are I love your succinct summaries. Um, I just want to mention that when I hear the word carnal, I, my instinct from my good evangelical Puritan inheritance is to think, oh, carnal bad. But carnal means means flesh. And remember that our, our religion is in some ways different than every other because we're the only ones whose God was enfleshed, whose God was embodied. And as Lewis says elsewhere, Christianity is the religion that celebrates the body. And so just because Venus is carnal and, you know, that word has taken a beating, we need not necessarily think of it as necessarily um, pejorative. Exactly. And I think this is why everybody should spend at least a little bit of time in San Diego. So when they hear carnal, they automatically think good, because they think of carne asada burritos. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Carne means meat. You know, it it, it means this kind of this sense of flesh. Um, I struggled a little bit with that, uh, with the quote from the Zaleskis. Um, And while being diplomatic, uh, let me say, I'm not sure uh, how well that that claim could be supported, that Arthur complained about that their talk was uh, too much about books and music. I'd really love to see the reference. Yeah, I wondered about that too. Uh, I just ran out of time. I didn't get a chance to look up the reference. Yeah. And I don't think we have 
uh, we have almost no letters back from Arthur, and so what we may have is Lewis responding to what Arthur said. But I imagine that this is fairly early on, and so I did a quick look through two volumes of the letters, and they actually often did talk about their struggles throughout the course of the years. And maybe it was a it was a comment by Arthur that that helped that to go deeply or more deep. But um, so yeah. So how about a hundred word summary for the day? Sure thing. While the carnal element in Eros is serious, Lewis warns us against taking Venus too seriously. He says if we allow this to happen, Venus herself will take her revenge upon us. Eros might feel transcendent, but Venus, due to its bodily nature, keeps our feet firmly on Earth. Jack considers the views of the body according to the ascetics, the neo-pagans, and St. Francis, preferring St. Francis' description of the body as brother ass. Lewis ends by speaking about the two kinds of crowns of Eros. One, which is of paper, and the other of thorns. And let me just toss in there this idea of transcendence and physicality, that Eros feels so so soaring and spiritual, and Venus feels so earthly and carnal. In some ways, that is Roman and Greek mythology anticipating the doctrine of the Incarnation. Because Christ, of course, is the eternal son, the second member of the Trinity, but he's also the, the man Jesus. And so what you have is this enfleshment of the transcendent in the mortal body. And so in some ways, I think that Lewis would see kind of a pagan echo or, or, uh, or, or prophecy in some ways of, uh, of how we understand the incarnation. With that, let's jump into the text. Okay. So last time we left things on a bit of a cliffhanger, Lewis had been saying that he didn't think that the chief danger of Eros was its carnal element, Venus. But we drew things to a close before discovering what he thinks the main issue really is. And as we resume today, Lewis says that while many of the gravest spokesmen of humanity would disagree with him, he says, I believe we are all encouraged to take Venus too seriously, at any rate, with the wrong kind of seriousness. All my life, a ludicrous and portentous solemnization of sex has been going on. So, I'd like to immediately kick it back to you guys. What's this solemnization of sex he's talking about? Well, there was one where he, he made a brief reference to how if, if we like almost treat it with an insane amount of seriousness or reverence so when someone's reading he mentioned a pornographic novel and someone was reading it and it, they made it sound like it was okay because they were taking it very seriously and so therefore the seriousness determined the morality almost of it and the seriousness doesn't determine the morality of it and then there i was somewhat speculating before going through his chapter that i think of people even today who almost put it on a pedestal in terms of seriousness. So you, you're not talking about it at all um, pre-marriage in any sense. It's a taboo to talk about it. We, we bear it under the rug. And then people get into marriage, and since it's never been talked about in a light manner, in the proper manner, it's there's a seriousness that then when you get into marriage, you realize, I mean, I have this all the time, actually, with some friends that, that have done a wonderful job with chastity and waiting until marriage, um, of being really caught off guard by it actually because it was almost too serious to some degree so th- those were that was the main thing that i was thinking of throughout this mm. 
Well, and I think we do well to keep in mind that Lewis is uh, is writing this having experienced Eros and Venus uh, in in his marriage relationship. I love the end of that paragraph, and it's where we took our quote, part of our quote of the week. A cheery old Ovid, who never either ignored a molehill or made a mountain of it, would be more to the point. We have reached the stage at which nothing is more needed than a roar of old-fashioned laughter. I think what happens in Lewis's day, they're coming out of the Victorian era that is hiding the body, that's creating all kinds of shame, and also with the throwing off of Christian morality that's happening in the Enlightenment, in the in the science science versus sacred you know, bifurcation in the Freudian, Nietzschean kind of change that happens at the, at the, in the early part of the century, we're throwing off Christian morality and saying, okay, the solemnization of sex is, is way too much, and, or the, the making of it, making private of it. And so the move is, we've been too prudish, now let's focus on it and embrace it and integrate sex into every aspect of our life, but they do it with a seriousness what we see now, 60, 70, 80 years later, is that sex is still as important, but it is treated far more trivially. And so I think that it's moved from where Lewis was. We still need to take it with some, you know, some hearty laughter. We need to put it in its place. And so now sex has you know, become something with no consequence and detached from morality and um, but it's also, if you'll notice, um, it becomes part of identity, and our 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 culture is swept away with defining ourselves, defining our identities by our sexuality, which really shows that we've got something really wrong with us because our sexuality is a small fragment uh, of our life, but it dominates everything that we talk about, you know, kind of all the time. Yeah, I was I was thinking that thing of it, it. It feels like it shifted completely the other way, exactly like you said, Andrew. And with everything with the times, I'm. It's not either or. It's a both and. As I think we're going to see when we get into this section talking about the body, he describes almost the two extremes, and then the one that he chooses is a bit of a both and. It's not. It's not just the the spiritual. It's not the physical. There's a both and. I think it's the same thing. It's not all about jokes and laughter. It's not all about seriousness. There's a both and. And I, I, that, that both and was a concept that just kept stringing through this section of this chapter, I thought. The highest doesn't stand without the lowest. Boom. Well done, Andrew. Here we go. So is Venus serious? Obviously, the Christian is going to argue that Venus is serious. And Lewis agrees with that. And he actually steel mans the argument, rather than strawmanning it, making it weaker, he makes it stronger. And he gives us four reasons why he believes Venus is something serious. Firstly, it's the image of Christ in the church. That's from St. Paul. Secondly, he describes it as a sub-Christian or pagan or natural sacrament. There's something innate in it. Thirdly, he says it involves great moral obligations. You know, parenthood is kind of a big deal. And fourthly, he says it often has a great natural emotional seriousness about it in the minds of those involved. However, he then points out that eating is also serious, theologically, ethically, socially, and medically. It's the means by which we receive Holy Communion. We have a duty to feed the hungry. The dinner table is often where relationships are formed and where we bond. And lastly, digestive issues are a big deal. However, despite these parallels, 
we don't react in the same way. It's it's true, and we're I think desperately desperately imbalanced in a lot of this. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the comic nature of Venus. I would throw that into a context too, uh, guys. Are you ready to drink? <laughs> okay. Yep, got my mug yeah, ready. So the last of the Chronicles of Narnia um, to be completed is actually the magician's nephew. And if the Reverend Dr. Father uh, Michael Ward is correct, and I believe he is, Venus is the goddess over magician's nephew. She's a creative goddess, and we see the creation of Narnia. She's also, though, a comic goddess, and we see it when the crow becomes the first joke. And so there is some laughter uh, involved in the creation. And so... uh, and then you can also see in some ways, and it's part of why I argue that till we have faces, pause for drink, my notes say, <laughs> is such a modernist novel is because she's concerned with Ungit all the time, and yet she never has sex, and she needs to be able to laugh at what Venus is doing. Lewis calls it the rough and tumble of the sexual encounter. Um, she she has this this portentous seriousness throughout the book and in and that's part of why she gets ungut or venus who is venus uh, part of why she gets it wrong uh, i think maybe you see in the the story of sarah and isaac a perfect uh, a perfect portrayal of it although you don't hear it talked about in these terms often enough when the angels come and tell abraham that at eight at Sarah's age 89 and Abraham's 99, when they come and say that Sarah's gonna, going to um, to have a child, she laughs. Uh, and a lot of Bible teachers will say, well, that's a scornful laugh or a doubtful laugh. I think she laughs, as Michael Card has said, she laughs because it's a joke. 89-year-old woman is going to have a baby, and that's why they name Isaac Yitzhak laughter. And that's this kind of laughing at the sexual act and the role that it plays because um, she knows that God's kind of at work. I think that's more a more balanced approach. Can I ask you a real quick question? Do you think Lewis would have wrote this the exact same way today? So it seems like here he's he's focusing more on the laughter side because it's really serious. If he was writing this chapter today, where it's honestly the seriousness is probably downplayed a little bit too much in the laughter the casualness way too upplayed, do you think he would be almost doing the counterpunch a little bit the other way because his goal is to try to get the right balance between both? Uh, I think that Lewis would maybe not talk so much about laughter or Venus. I think that he would talk about our modern approach to flippancy and frivolity and the way that we have trivialized or that screw tape has helped us to trivialize some of the most important things. Remember that screw tape always wants us to get always wants to get us even just a little bit away from the authentic and the real and the true and the valid response. And so in that we have trivialized sex and in that we have made sex everywhere, I mean you see it in ever advertisements everywhere, you see it portrayed and you see the sexual union, not as this the way that the Bible portrays it, but as just this kind of casual thing that happens with people. This ultimate intimacy is kind of a throwaway thing. And then when you see the much darker side, sexual exploitation, prostitution, you know, abuse all over the world, what you see is the enemy trivializing while maintaining it central. And so I think that he would talk more about our attitude towards fl- flippancy and our 
our lack of, uh, of the long view to take things seriously in exactly the right gospel-centered sort of way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But also, like you say, Matt, if Lewis spoke more about that, this element of levity wouldn't disappear. I, I mean, I remember reading this chapter before I got married, and I didn't really understand what he says here about humor. However, the longer I'm married, the more this chapter speaks to me. Quite a lot of married life is about laughter. Laughing at yourself and each other. Lewis, later in the chapter, I think, talks about the ridiculousness of the naked human body. And, uh, and elsewhere, I think here and in A Grief Observe, he talks about um, when the moment is right, one or the other partner isn't in the mood. And when the, both partners are in the mood, the moment is wrong. And, you know, and it just, <laughs> it, that seems so grave. And it seems like it's the wrong sort of importance and pressure that gets put on. Um, and that's part of why he suggests reading older books. I mean, when you look at the, the Canterbury Tales, with the kind of nakedness and some of the crudity and the laughter that they have about all of that that's going on, you know, it. I think it's it's. Um, I think there's a kind of healthy, salubrious kind of approach uh, to to these things that we could learn from older ages. And it's a certain kind of humility. When you can laugh, you're not taking yourself too seriously. Yes. Lewis warns us that if we are totally serious about Venus, we end up doing violence to our humanity. We can take it seriously, just not too seriously. He points to the universal presence of old jokes about sex. He says they can be in poor taste, but he asserts that this sort of attitude is far less dangerous to the Christian life than a reverential gravity. He warns, banish play and laughter from the bed of love, and you may let in a false goddess. Love songs need not always be tragic. They can be comic too. But what happens if we do take it too seriously though, and we let in this false goddess? Lewis says that Venus herself will get her revenge, and in two ways. And I have my suspicions of what he meant, but I didn't entirely understand this first kind. Regarding Venus, Sir Thomas Brown says that it's the foolishest act a wise man commits in all his life, nor is there anything that will more deject his cooled imagination when he shall consider what an odd and unworthy piece of folly he has committed. Yeah, that's, uh, that's straight in the spirit of, um, of Shakespeare's sonnet, where he talks about the expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action, and he calls it before a joy proposed behind a dream. Right. And so what happens is Venus is an incredibly powerful goddess. Um, and like we've heard before, when the real god comes, the half gods can take their proper place. And what we see is by banishing God from our cultural and, and, uh, and intellectual uh, imaginations, we have allowed the false gods to wrestle for uh, kind of the, the 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 place is the one you know guiding the guiding guiding people the the, the pilot of the ship, and so um, it, it's it, when we go on a sexual economy and have excised God and Christian morality from it, um, we're you know it's like he talks about in the three kinds of morality our ships are going to run into each other our ships are going to end up in the wrong place and our 
our, our steering on the inside is going to break down. Um, it's, it's what happens when you, when you deal with one morality instead of trying to combine the two of those. And you see it all around. I mean, you see it in the divorce rate. You see it in the, 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 the prevalence of sexual, sexually transmitted diseases. You see this more being that sex is great. There's nothing wrong with sex. You should have as much sex as you want with what, with whoever you want. It just it once we've kicked the, the the parents out of the room, it's Lord of the Flies, right? And our baser instincts are going to start to rule. And I think that this is part of what what's gonna what Lewis is talking about here. So he's effectively talking about the consequences of misuse. Sure, absolutely. I also didn't fully understand what he's saying here. So whether this is way off base, I pictured this, you know how in life sometimes the world, we, we get proper, we put on this false self, we want to make sure we perform for the world, we're cool, collected, all this stuff. And then you engage in the sexual act and there's just like a, like a, a, a childness, a cardinalness, a, a an animalisticness to it. And so I, I just personally pictured this super proper British man <laughs> who then like loses all of that exterior. And you have like one person on the outside to the world and then another person in there, like this foolishness to it, you know, no matter how much you try to, to put on like there, the desire, the ravenous desire just overcomes you almost. Um, and you, you almost lose that controlled out exterior, Batesian rigidity. <laughs> Man, I am so in your head right now. <laughs> I think we should also take in mind uh, about a decade earlier, a uh, little bit more, um, maybe 13, 14 years ago, uh, before the writing of this book. Yeah, 15 years or so. Um, Charles Williams uh, at the kind of at the at the agency of some of the inklings was invited to give a series of lectures at Oxford about the value of chastity. And chastity is one of those things that has absolutely fallen out of favor in almost every culture. You know, you see St. Paul talking about um, those who have been made eunuchs and some who are eunuchs by choice for the kingdom of heaven. You look at the chastity of monks, you look at the chastity of the priesthood, and this has been a value that has been praised. And the idea that I would not express myself sexually and not do that all the time is completely foreign to our society. And the embracing of chastity is also something completely, completely foreign to our society. And in fact, frankly, in some of our mainline denominations, it's also, uh, it's also not considered um, that chastity can be a way of loving God. And it seems kind of inconceivable. And when I see that happen, not only do I want the tonic of reading books from other centuries, as Lewis recommends, I also really see that probably screw tape is at work trying to veer us one way or the other to get us away from the proper biblical attitude towards chastity, sex, Venus, Eros, all of that. Well, the other way that Lewis says that Venus gets her revenge is what we alluded to earlier. Venus will tease the couple that take her too seriously and frustrate their amorous intentions. He writes, When all external circumstances are fittest for her service, She'll leave one or both lovers totally indisposed for it. When every overt act is impossible and even glances cannot be exchanged, in trains, in shops, and at interminable parties, I think Lewis is writing a little autobiographically there, <laughs> she will assail them with all her force. An hour later, when time and place agree, 
she will have mysteriously withdrawn, perhaps from only one of them. What a pother this must raise. What resentment, self-pity, suspicions, wounded vanities, and all the current chatter about frustration in those who have deified her. This, this part really jumped out to me because I have, I'm not married, so I haven't actually experienced this firsthand, but I have a number of people in my life who I've chatted with about these things, and I can only speak from the male perspective. But I have talked to men that when their spouse isn't really feeling it, and it's nothing to do with them, take it really personally, when they don't want to engage in a sexual act. They're, so they're, they're wounded, their vanities are wounded. That, that jumped out to me because they feel they're not desired by their wife. They feel they're not loved. They feel they're not worthy. And you know, in a lot of cases, it's just a biological thing. And so, if you, and so the, the part that I was thinking about here, deifying her, was if you place your validation your worth, your identity in the validation you get from the sexual act, you, it's almost holding it up to too much of your worth, you're going to have a problem. And you're going to get resentment. You're going to get bitterness. You're going to get wounded vanities. And so I, 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 this part I really liked. I'll remind us again of the definition of love from the talks from 1958, a couple of years before this book was written. And remember that love, according to Lewis, is to go out of ourselves towards the other. And although it seems a bit of a truism, but if in a sexual relationship within a marriage, if I abandon my own needs to a, at least a certain extent, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, St. Paul says. And I concern myself with what my wife needs, physically, sexually, emotionally, intellectually, so, you know, all the rest. If, I, if my main concern is pleasing her, and her main concern is pleasing me, I think that we stand a much better chance of finding a balance than, as you said, Matt, to, you know, for men to walk around with their wounded vanities. If it's about me, and Lewis, I think in this chapter, um, uh, he says when a man says that he wants a woman, it's exactly a woman that he doesn't want. He wants that bit of apparatus, you know, for which a woman, that a woman can provide. If I really want that person and want to honor that person, I'm going to want to honor her sexually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all the rest. And out of myself towards the other, or as he says at the end of mere Christianity, out of ourselves into Christ we must go. And the solution here as he says, is that sensible lovers laugh. Mm -hmm. It's all part of the game, a game of catch as catch can, and the escapes and tumbles and head-on collisions are to be treated as a romp. And I think, I think he's, he's, he's very much right there. But the one thing I would almost add to it that Andrew just said, but highlight, and as the two married men you guys are, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I have chatted with men in men's group about these things, um, Andrew, you said it well, when you, when you change your focus to pleasing each other, and I don't mean in this case, sense like sexually pleasing, but loving the other and pouring into them. So as from a man's perspective, what I'll encourage is like, if you are pursuing your wife daily and doing the things and dating her in marriage, I have a funny feeling those moments when the sexual act lines up is going to be more frequent. If you're just kind of waiting and expecting her desire to turn on at some point, so then, oh, I'm ready, like, you know what? That's I don't think that's going to happen here as often as you think. Like your your wife, your spouse wants to be pursued, wants to be desired. Are you planning date nights? Are you pursuing her? Are you being incredibly intentional? And those kind of things increase that chance, honestly. Uh, but you can't do it for the end in itself. It's like I'm doing this, so she'll do that for me. It's like you need to just what you're saying, please her and love her, 
And then mm. it'll be a byproduct, probably, mm. hopefully. Years ago at Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, I heard the wonderful pastor Scotty Smith uh, do a whole sermon about this, about wives uh, or husbands love your wives. And he said, how many times, gentlemen, do you touch your wives because of, some, of an outcome that you want? You know, if I'm asking my wife how she feels, if I'm doing the dishes, if I'm doing those things that show her that I care for her, oftentimes if I have a result in mind, that, that, may, be a, that may be a different approach. It's about being concerned with the, with the needs of the other. And sometimes a back rub is just a back rub. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's the quote of the week. Indeed. At the end of this section, Jack points out the hilarious incongruity because you have this soaring, transcendent passion of Eros, yet it's so deeply tied to the very earthly and bodily, he calls them mundane factors, things such as weather, health, diet, circulation, and digestion. And this is because, as Screwtape said, humans are amphibians. We're soul, but also body. And Lewis says, in Eros, at times we seem to be flying, Venus gives us the sudden twitch that reminds us we are really captive balloons. It is a continual demonstration of the truth that we are composite creatures, rational animals, akin on one side to the angels, on the other to tomcats. He portrays it as God's big joke, and a joke that is for our benefit. And we're going to see soon, and I'm very excited for us to have a mini discussion around why is this somewhat a big joke? What is it protecting? Why did it need to be this way? And we'll get to that coming up here. We are composite creatures, rational animals, angels and tomcats. It's um, it's screw tape too, that we are beasts and we are spiritual. And this maddening advantage of the enemies to have had the incarnation um, and so we have these two forces at work, and we should never be able to find really easy answers. It should, as Lewis says, become catch-as-catch-can. <laughs> and since he's been talking about the body, Lewis then takes an aside to consider the three main views humanity has had about the body. Firstly, the ascetics, both pagan and Christian. The pagans describe the body as the tomb of the soul. And likewise, some Christians have described it as a sack of dung. I think here he's referring to St. John Fisher. But then there's also the neo-pagans, the nudists and the sufferers from dark gods. And this group regard the body as glorious. But lastly, he considers St. Francis's description of the body as brother ass. And Lewis rather likes St. Francis's assessment. Because he says, ass is exquisitely right. Because no one in their senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, lazy obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast, deserving now the stick and now the carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful. So the body. He says that just because Eros sometimes requires to take it with total seriousness, that doesn't mean that we should always take it with total seriousness, particularly when it involves the body, which Lewis regards as the oldest joke there is. And he believes that he has the lovers of the world on his side, he says lovers, unless their love is very short-lived, again and again feel an element not only of comedy, not only of play, but of buffoonery in the body's expression of Eros. This was that section where it made me think of, it was Bishop Barron that first ever said the both and. And what I mean by that is 
sometimes you'll have individuals that will really stress Christ's mercy and love that. Nothing wrong with that. And you have other people that are really stressing like the teachings of the standards we're supposed to be living by. And they always seem to be either or. You know, one, one, if, if you're, if you're doing, jer- if you're putting mercy really high, you're bringing justice down. If you're bringing justice up, you're putting mercy really down. And he's like, it's both and. You know, you have to, we don't dilute teaching. We don't dilute the standard we're supposed to live by. Uh, we hold that to the highest of standards because it's for our own benefit, as we know. Uh, but we're all falling short, and so you got to bring the mercy. Well, that same principle here with the body. I think there's, there's the, side of it. That's why I like the St. Francis one. You have the side where the body is incredibly glorious, incredibly beautiful, and wonderful. And, and as Christians, we're called to believe that. But then you also have the part where, yeah, there's some parts of the body that lead us into temptation. And we have to understand that that's also equally true. And they, they come, I think they come together is how I've, I've somewhat thought of that. It's not that you think of it as this big sack of temptation thing that stinks and you can't wait to get rid of it. And you don't think of it as this perfect thing. Um, and I love his brother ass description. Absolutely. Um, I think it's actually St. Bernard uh, who refers to the body as a sack of dung. Actually, I did find it in Fisher's sermons, and I think he was quoting okay. St. Augustine. Hmm. But actually, that's one of the things about this section. I think he overly simplifies both the pagan and the Christian position, and actually also St. Francis's. But I think his main point is that we need to have something of a golden mean neither hating nor deifying the body. Well, and I think Lewis gets the quote from Havelock Ellis, uh, who he refers to earlier. And Ellis quotes St. Bernard, but I, yeah, I imagine the, the phrase kicks around in several several places, and, and Bernard probably got it from somewhere else. But he quotes Sack of Dung from Havelock Ellis, so at least maybe that's where it all comes from. It's about balance, of course. It's about the kind of... <laughs> as always, living our daily lives in light of heaven, but rooted in the here and now. What does Screwtape say? We should not think about the past or the future. We should be thinking about today, this very moment, or we should be thinking about eternity, which means thinking about God. So I should be thinking about doing my duty today or thinking about God. And it's this balance that's hard to do in human in humans because of our fallen nature. And as we make progress towards our heavenly goal, we see that nature being changed day by day, as St. Paul so hopefully points out in Second Corinthians. You know, and before we go to the next section, we're going to jump into the, the two different crowns. I had mentioned one thing that I always ask myself in these chapters is, is why is something the way it is? Or why is Lewis writing something? So what is the why? And here was, you know, what, why is the humorous so important? Or why do we have, he describes that example of when, when you want it, she doesn't want it. When she wants it, you don't want it. If you both want it, it's not the right place. Um, time, weather, all this stuff can play a factor in it. And he said, this is one big joke by God. And so I was asking myself through this, why did God need to make this to some degree one big joke? And he had this one line that I thought answered it brilliantly. He said, when natural things look most divine, the demonic is just around the corner. And it was, I somewhat interpret that personally, that sex, if it was taken in all of its seriousness that he's describing, with none of the laughter and the joke, would run the risk that we would turn it into a God. But because of these things that we've been describing this whole time that make it foolish, that make it obnoxious, that, and, and some of the, the laughter and negative side, it's hard to make it the divine now. It almost like saves it from itself. It's almost the constraints that get put around it that keep us from 
turning it into the divine. And when I came across it, I like started that multiple times. I was like, oh, this, this would be a great quote of the week. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a safety valve. Yes, safety valve is a great way of doing it. And as the scripture says, when you intend to do good, beware that evil is crouching at your door. And even that moment, as you were talking about, Matt, that moment where Eve is this close to achieving immortality, and she reaches for the wrong tree. You know, she turns from God to herself. She turns from Adam to herself, you know, and and Adam even, even in a worse way. And so, yeah, it's, I think that had Eve and Adam, especially Adam, chosen from the right tree, we would never have been have had this as a uh, as a problem. It would always have been kind of perfectly balanced. And I think that part of our jobs, as uh, would, for those who are married, is to bring that thing into more perfect balance, more perfect union, um, as as God originally intended. And when you you know, like Lewis says in Mere Christianity, no one knows how bad they really are until they try very hard to be good. Um, it's hard to bring this back into balance, and there are spiritual forces arrayed, but we can do it. For the remainder of this episode, we're going to look at where Lewis describes the two kinds of crowns which are given in romance, one of tinsel paper and the other of thorns. And I'll admit, I wasn't 100% sure what he was saying about the first crown, but I'll have a go at explaining what I think he means. He begins by asserting that Venus can make lovers react, for want of a better word, strangely. Here's what he says. This act can invite the man to an extreme, though short-lived, masterfulness, to the dominance of a conqueror or a captor, and the woman to a corresponding extreme abjection and surrender. Jack says that this is harmless and wholesome on one condition, and refers to what he said earlier about how sex functions almost as a pagan sacrament. He claims that in the act of love, we aren't merely ourselves, but we're somehow representatives in nature, as forces older and less personal than we work through us. In us, all masculinity and femininity of the world, all that is assailant and responsive, are momentarily focused. The man does play sky father, and the woman earth mother. He does play form and she matter. And he says that this is okay as long as we understand that we're playing a role. So, what do you think he's talking about? Andrew, you seem like you have deep thoughts. I'm unfamiliar with crowns done in tinseled paper except to think of the Christmas crown that they wear in England. And so in that we kind of take on a majesty or an imitative majesty that is implied in the incarnation when God the King comes and becomes man, we celebrate by wearing crowns ourselves. Um, we, we look at the, the, even the kingship of the, of the visiting kings. Um, I get this. He's also talking about uh, Oranos and Gaia, um, right? Oranos, the starry sky god, who comes down to Gaia, the earth mother, and out of Gaia, or out of the earth, springs forth life. And so it's the sky god and the earth mother. This is kind of a classic pagan trope, and uh, not only in Greek myth, but in, in lots of other myths. And so there's a, an element of coming down, invading, to, to, to even penetration that happens, that there's this thing that goes on in our myths about how creation takes place. And there is an echo of that in what happens in the sexual act between husband and wife. And it's okay, I think, to 
play at those things as we, uh, but only if we acknowledge that it is play, right? That there is some kind of coming down, there is some kind of conjunction like that that is similar to the way that our myths work. Uh, but it's, it's once again, only uh, a, in some ways a play thing. And in that, I think it also encourages the comic spirit. It, it encourages the, uh, the, the laughing act in that. So we admit that we are playing a role. So I think that that's some of what he's trying to get at. Um, but acknowledging by the phrase, the tinseled crown, acknowledging that there are truer, more spiritual things and pointing, I think, frankly, to the incarnation, this idea that God comes down and is born of woman and arises from the earth and then is lifted up from the earth. So I think that there are echoes in this kind of incarnational theology and in this kind of pagan, uh, pagan portrayal of how, um, how the earth was created. The, the thing that jumped out to me, the key sentence that I, I thought unlocked this a bit, and potentially I'm unlocking this incorrectly, so you guys can, you can keep me in check. But he claims that in the act of love, we aren't merely ourselves, but our representatives. And I almost just interpret that kind of literally, that we're also playing a role in a bigger spiritual realm, eternal realm. You know, there's He's been very much focused on the man and the wife, the spouse, the act together, the family unit. And that's all incredibly true. But let's, let's not also forget that we are a part of this bigger divine game is a terrible word, but I'm, I'm lack of a better word, divine plan, <laughs> divine cosmos, divine theater. And that act itself also has ramifications in that divine theater, I guess. Divine play. Yeah, I like that. I think also um, there's this sense at which, you know, St. Paul, controversially enough, says that husbands are the head of the wives um, as Christ is the head of the church. But then we are all the bride of Christ. So male and female, we are all in some ways in, rela- in our relationship to God feminized in an important way, in a subservient or a humbling way. And so there are all of these things kind of mixing around um, and... Uh, and you can see in the way that, you know, men have abused women throughout the years that that, uh, that the enemy is invested in us getting these things wrong. But there, I, th- I think, are, as you said, Matt, lots of roles that we can play and play redemptively. The other reference I thought of when reading about a paper crown was from one of the Narnia books, which Matt hasn't actually read yet, The Last Battle. In it, we read that Shift the Ape wore a paper crown. Ah. In this chapter of The Four Loves, Lewis says he doesn't hold paper crowns in contempt. He likes them, the theatricals, the charades. And he says that paper crowns even have their legitimate and serious uses. The problem in The Last Battle is that Shift doesn't realize how ridiculous he is and how ridiculous is his crown. And if he did, it would solve quite a few problems. Hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh, it's a great book. And if you don't cry, you have no soul. <laughs> So in the previous section, Lewis had been talking about what he called the natural pagan sacrament and its corresponding paper crown. And he then goes on to consider the Christian sacrament of matrimony, which he describes as an incomparably higher mystery. And listeners will recall that Lewis talks about headship in marriage in his chapter in Mere Christianity. And he addresses it here again and speaks of a corresponding crown here as well. He writes... As nature crowns man in that brief action, so the Christian law has crowned him in a permanent relationship of marriage, bestowing, or should I say inflicting, a certain headship on him. 
This is a very different coronation. And as we could easily take the natural mystery too seriously, so we might take the Christian mystery not seriously enough. And here he's referring to the headship which St. Paul speaks of in several places, but particularly in his epistle to the Ephesians. Lewis quite rightly criticizes John Milton, saying that Milton speaks about headship uh, with a complacency to make the blood run cold. Lewis reminds readers that headship in marriage means imitation of Christ, and therefore it means death to self for the love of the beloved, for the love of the bride. He ends the section by reflecting on the two different crowns he's discussed. He writes, The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex the crown offered to it in either the pagan or in the Christian mystery, for one is of paper and the other of thorns. The real danger is not that husbands may grasp the latter too eagerly, but that they will allow or compel their wives to usurp it. The portion of this chapter which we've read today is what I think got Lewis into so much trouble with the Episcopal bishops when he first recorded The Four Loves as a series of radio broadcasts. He was just a little bit too frank about sex for them. So, as we wrap up, do either of you have any closing thoughts on this landmine-ridden text? The real danger is not that husbands may grasp the crown of thorns too easily, but that they will allow or compel their wives to usurp the crown of thorns. And I love that he ends this way because he points to, I think, the place where a lot of the troubled relationships between masculine and feminine to the, to the patriarchal and paternal can, can quite easily resolve. I think so much of our problems would be resolved if husbands loved their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Right? If men were always self-sacrificial in their love for their wives in the same way that Christ constantly laid down his life for the church and continues to do so, I think that that would resolve a lot of the problems between men and women. Um, and that's, I love that he ends it in that direction. Yeah, and I was going to say, I thought this was really beautiful. And if you just, I feel like a lot of the the pushback that sometimes comes could be had by imagine if you just deleted the part of men or heads and just read the rest of the stuff how many people would probably think it's a really beautiful sentence when you're when you're describing emptying yourself loving self-sacrifice to the point of death and you just stop there and said do that i don't think there'd really be anyone that would have qualms with that I think there's plenty of challenge uh, it, here in all of us to humble ourselves uh, before Almighty God, that he will, uh, he will lift us up and that he will give grace to the humble. Um, and there's certainly a hearty need not only for laughter, but for humility in our relationships with one another. Well, and with that, I hear the last call bell sounding at the Lamb and Flag. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, including our top tier supporters, a Nani Mouse, Oh, wait, no. It's, I'm, I'm calling it that from, from here on in. Uh, that was so good, Andrew. Hey, Nani Mouse, Bill and Joanna, thank you so much. Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, and Kay. Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy, and with all the great cloud of witnesses who come along on this merry journey every week. So please join us next time when we'll be going further up 
and further in. Cheers. 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 Tink.